Hello and welcome back to the History of Middle-Earth podcast. I'm your host, Phil, and will be your guide for today's adventure back to Middle-Earth. This episode is brought to you by Stefan Pohl. To start us off, we're going to be going over this coming weeks in Middle-Earth history. Today is August 12th, and on this day in 3018, Frodo is continuing to secretly make his plans to leave Hobbiton. On Monday, August 15th, Treebeard releases Saruman and Grima. On Monday, August 22nd, in 2941, is when Bilbo has his fight with the spiders in Mirkwood Forest. The next day on the 23rd is when the dwarves surrender when surrounded by elves and Bilbo uses his ring and disappears. On Sunday, August 28th, Bilbo is searching out each of the dwarves' cells inside of Mirkwood, and in 3019 is when Saruman is overtaken and he leaves for the Shire. And the last day we'll do, Friday, September 2nd, in 1973, Professor Tolkien sails into the west. And this is also the day that the Lord of the Rings Rings of Power is released on Amazon Prime Video. Now for the main topic, Shelob, the Watchers, the Tower, and the Fortress of Kirith Ungol. Shelob was a great spider akin to those of, of Nanda Gorotheb and Beleriand, the last offspring of the demonic Ungoliant. Shelob was born during the Elder Days to the spider demon Ungoliant, who mated with and devoured the spider creatures of the arid Gorgoroth. She dwelt for many years in Anandungorthab with her countless brothers and sisters, even after Ungoliant ventured elsewhere. Shelob fled from ruin from both Ungoliant and the War of Wrath which was going on, and established her lair high in the mountains of Mordor before Sauron claimed the land as his own. She mated with her offspring which she slew, and her descendants were to be seen in the Ethelduath and Mirkwood. She loved fed off all living things such as elves and men, but as these became scarce in the area, she fed upon orcs. Sauron would sometimes send her captured prisoners for whom he had no further use of, and amused himself watching how she played with her prey. Even though they did not directly communicate, Sauron was aware of Shelob's presence in the mountains and allowed her to dwell there, for she made an excellent, if incidental, guard for the passage of Kirith Ungol, preventing any intruders from entering the Dark Land. While looking for the One Ring, Gollum was trapped by Shelob, but he managed somehow to communicate with her and promised to bring her more food if she released him. Indeed, Gollum, who the orcs of the Tower of Kirith Ungol called Shelob's Sneak, visited her, visited her again on the 11th of March, and brought Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins near her lair while seeking Mount Doom. While put off by the file of Galadriel in the tunnels, she intercepted them again outside and attacked Frodo, stinging him into a death-like coma. Sam managed to defeat her by letting her impale herself upon Sting when she tried to crush him under her massive body, and using all the power of the file of Gladriel to blind her. 
Wounded, she fled to her lair and was not seen for the remainder of the Third Age. Thinking Frodo dead, Sam took the One Ring from him and left his body behind, but discovered later that she loves Venom, was not intended to kill its victims, but only render them unconscious and keep their meat fresh while in a state of paralysis. Sheila may have eventually died of starvation caused by her inability to hunt while blind and from her severe wound. Kirithungal itself was a pass through the Ethelduath that led into Mordor. The pass was located in a cleft on the slope of the mountain on the left side of the Morgul Vale above the Morgul Pass. It could be reached by climbing the stairs of Kirith Ungol at the beginning of the Morgul Vale, passing through a tunnel and taking a long flight of broad, shallow steps to the cleft with the crown of the pass after which the road turned left and plunged steeply down to the tower of Kirith Ungol. The pass of Kirith Ungol was probably named after the giant spider Shelob who dwelt there. It was also referred to as the High Pass. The pass was first called Kirith Duath, meaning Shadow Cleft. This name was used during the War of the Last Alliance when Isildur sent his sons, Aratan and Kirion, to Minas Ethel to prevent the forces of Sauron from escaping through the pass. After the War of the Last Alliance, the men of Gondor built a tower at the eastern end of Kirith Duath as an eastern outpost of the defenses of Athelion to keep enemies in Mordor. This tower was later called the Tower of Kirith Ungol. During the War of the Ring, in March, T in March 3019 of the Third Age, Gollum led Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee up the stairs and into Shelob's lair. Kirithungal is a Sindarin name. It means Cleft of the Spider. It contains the elements Kirith, meaning cleft, or a narrow passage cut through earth or rock, and Ungol, meaning spider. In earlier drafts of Kirithungal, it was also called Kirith Ungol, with a K, and was guarded by Minas Morgul instead of the Tower of Kirithungal. It was first the main pass into Mordor, or a cleft near the main pass, it was located where Kirith Gorgor is located in the final version. Later it became the high pass that was first on the south side and finally the north side of the Morgul Vale. The two watchers were carved figures that guarded the arched gateway through the outer wall that led to the courtyard of the Tower of Kirithungul. The two watchers were great two figures that were sitting on thrones on both sides of the gateway. Their figures were formed of three bodies with heads with the faces of vultures and eyes of black stone. One head looked outward, one head looked inward, and the third head stared across the gateway itself. They were inhabited by, quote, some dreadful spirit of evil vigilance, end quote. Not a visible or invisible creature was unnoticed by them. They had the power to identify enemies and block them from entering or from exiting through the gate with the force of their will alone and were able to send a shrill alarm if their guard was breached. It is probable that the two Watchers were not created by the men of Gondor because the vigilance of their spirit was described as evil and because they perceived a hobbit as the enemy but would let orcs pass through the gateway. On the 14th of March, 3019, 
the two watchers blocked Sam's initial attempt to pass through the gate. However, Sam was able to overcome the will of the two watchers with the help of the file of Galadriel, and was able to pass through the gate into the court of the Tower of Kirith Ungol in a second attempt. When he passed the gate, the watchers uttered in a high shrill cry, which was answered by a single clang of a bell high up in the Tower of Kirith Ungol. After hearing the bell, the orc Snaga said to the orc Shagrat that a great fighter, an elf or a man of Gondor, also known as Tark, got past the Watchers, and that Tark's, and that's a Tark's work. It is probable that he meant that the feat of getting past the Watchers was the work of a man of Gondor. Later that day, in order to leave the tower, Frodo and Sam held up again the file of Galadriel while invoking Erendil and Elbereth, which broke the will of the two Watchers so that they were able to pass through the gate to the outside. The keystone of the arch in the wall above the gate crumbled into ruin after they passed, but the two Watchers uttered a high and dreadful wail. The Tower of Kirith Ungol was a fortress on the left side of the paths in the Ethelduath on the western border of Mordor. Frodo was taken into the tower and searched by orcs, however he was rescued by Sam before they descended into the plateau of Gorgoroth. It is possible that the Tower of Kirith Ungol was originally called by a different name because the path of Kirith Ungol was previously called the Kirith Duath. The tower stood against the eastern mountain face of the Ethel Duath on the mountain slope on the left side of the paths. It looked down on the trough between the Ethel Duath and the Morgai and the plateau of Gorgoroth beyond the Morgai. From the west, only the round, topmost turret was visible. The turret was supported by three great tiers with pointed bastions that stood on a shelf in the mountain wall far below and looked northeast, south, and southeast in Mordor. The lowest tier was encircled by a 30-foot high wall with overhanging battlements that enclosed a narrow paved courtyard. The main gate on the southeastern side of the wall was opened on to a broad road that ran along the precipice down to a southward bend and down to join the road that came over the Morgul Pass. A narrower, narrower path led down from Kirith Ungol by stairs to meet the broad road near the gate. In the gate were the two watchers. Across the courtyard, a great door at the foot of the tower led to its interior. A wide passage with doors on either side led from the door to the mountainside. At the end of the passage was a great arched door that was the inner side of the undergate, and to the right of the undergate was a windy stairway that led to the upper levels of the tower. The top of the stairs was covered by a domed chamber, with low, facing east, with low doors facing east and west leading out onto the flat roof of the third tier of the tower. The roof was about 20 yards across and was surrounded by a parapet, and on the western side of the road of the roof stood the turret of the tower whose top rose high above the crest of the hills behind it. Another winding, another winding stairway inside the turret led up to the first and second story of the turret. It had window slits facing westward and eastward through the, which torchlight glowed like red eyes. In the ceiling of the passage, a trapdoor led to the middle of the floor of a large round chamber at the top of the tower. 
The tower of Kirith Ungol was originally built by the Gondorians after the War of the Last Alliance as an eastern outpost and of the defenses of Athelion and Minas Ethel. Its purpose was to defend Athelion and Minas Ethel from attacks from Sauron's remaining servants by guarding the pass of Kirith Ungol and watching movements in Mordor. Later, the vigilance of Gondor failed, and the Tower of Kirith Ungol was yielded up to the Lord of the Ringwraiths due to treachery. On 13 March 3019, orcs from the Tower, under the command of Shagrat, captured Frodo and finding his unconscious body in the pass below, carried his body through the underway and into the undergate that, besides the main gate, was the only entrance to the Tower. After overhearing Shagrat and Gorbag talking, Sam realized that Frodo had been paralyzed by Shelob and not killed as he first thought. Sam was too late to gain entry through the Undergate and knocked himself senseless trying to get in. When Sam awoke on 14 March 3019, he determined to enter the main gate to find Frodo. Mastering his fears, Sam came up to the main gate and was halted by the will of the two Watchers. Holding aloft the file of Galadriel, Sam overcame their will and thrust through the gate, but the Watchers let forth a shill cry that was echoed by a harsh bell above. In the meantime, the orcs had searched Frodo. When they found the shirt of Mithril Mail that Frodo was wearing, the quarrel over the spoils erupted. A contingent of orcs from Minas Morgul, led by Gorbag, fought Shagrat and his company for possession of the Mithril. The fight spread throughout the tower, and most of the orcs on both sides were killed, making it possible for Sam to proceed and rescue Frodo. Although Sam fought Shagrat, the orc got away, bearing Frodo's gear to Baradur. Sam finally found Frodo in the topmost chamber after killing Snagat. I'm gonna bleed you like a stuck pig! Not if I stick you first. Sam! Oh, Sam, I'm so sorry. Sorry for everything. Let's get you out of here. Oh, it's too late. It's over. They've taken it. Sam, they took the ring. Begging your pardon, but they haven't. Sam then returned the One Ring to Frodo, dressed him, and gathered food and gear, and they left. On the way out, their use of the file caused the gate to crumble behind them. Again, the bell clanged and the Watchers issued a high dreadful wail. This was answered far above in the darkness, and out of the sky dropped the winged shape of a Nazgul with a ghastly shriek. And there you have it, the history of Shelob and the Fortress of Kirith Angle. We do have a few questions this week. This question comes from Mimi Maggard. She says, I've been a fan of Lord of the Rings for my whole entire life. When I was younger, my dad got me into it as well as my brother. Now that I'm older, I'm currently 24 years old, I have found it way more interesting because I actually understand it. I started listening to your podcast, I'm already a good ways in, and just want to say it's really good, and I enjoy it. Well, thank you. I do have a question, though. I have always wondered about the calendar year for them. Obviously, some characters grow older than others, but I feel like majority of them do live a longer life than normal humans in our world. 
Is the calendar year different or are they really living that to be 100 plus years old in our time? So this is an interesting question. Um, I know for some of our, some of the episodes, especially probably episode one regarding the Shire, you might hear something, a date being said in saying it's this year, but this year in Shire Reckoning. And that's because the Shire has their own kind of calendar that they use, although it's very almost identical to the one that the men use, as it included 12 months, but all of which are 30 days long plus five or six name days added to round out the 365, or really 366 days for leap years. The elves, they use the calendar of Mladris, or the Reckoning of Rivendell, and that was the only real calendar known, at least for the hobbits, that the elves used. So this is where math gets involved, and it gets kind of complicated. <laughs> So, long periods of time were reckoned in Yini, which corresponded to 144 solar years containing 8,766 inquire, if I said that right, which are six-day weeks, totaling 52,596 days. A single solar year was called Koronar, or Loa, and that was divided into six long months rather than seasons, and they were all kind of different lengths of time. However, there was additional days added to bring the total to 365 days again. And there's a lot of elvish names for the different like days of the week and months and different things like that. And of course you have your Quenya translations and your Sindarin names for it. Um, and I'm not going to go through all those because I'm probably going to butcher them and embarrass myself. But then it gets more complicated because every like 432nd year only had three Hendiri and emitted the last three leap days in that year. But it they did uh, it also based on the third age. I don't think they did the leap years anymore. But so it's yeah it's crazy complicated. <laughs> Overall, pretty much everyone had roughly a 365 day year. So it's not like dog years really where it's like one year to a man is like seven to an elf although I guess it would be kind of the other way because they would live a lot longer but yeah so elves they weren't technically immortal they just lived for such a vast long amount of time that people like you know humans basically just considered them immortal because they would be thousands and thousands and thousands of years that they lived which at that point basically feels immortal to people who only lived to be, you know, 80 to 100 years on average. We also have Valian years, which last between 9 and 10 regular years, according to Tolkien. And one Valian year is 1,000 Valian days, defined as uh, the duration of a complete flowering of the tree, two trees of Valinor. And a Valian day is divided into 12 Valian hours, and each Valian hour has a duration of two seven solar hours. And there's a whole bunch more math to that as well, which is just going to confuse probably everyone, including myself. 
The next question comes from Alex Rogers. He says, hey, I just started listening to the podcast and it's great and I love how in-depth and interesting it is, but I find it a bit hard to follow, mostly because I haven't heard a lot of the names or concepts that are mentioned. I was thinking you could do a broad overview of everything in chronological order, mostly to give a sense of placement in the timeline and to familiarize us with the names. And then once you finish with that, you could go back and cover each topic in extensive detail. This is also coming from me, a total noob in the world of Tolkien, Tolkien, so it may just be that I should read some more of his books. Also, you probably have each episode planned out and everything, so it would probably be it would be extremely inconvenient to do my suggestion. I mostly just wanted to give you some input. I'm not really expecting you to listen. Thanks, Alex. So there's a lot of different times and ages that span the Lord of the Rings. Like we start with the time before the creation of the world and the beginning of time which is where the Silmarillion starts, and then it goes on to the years of music, the beginning of time, years of the lamps, years of the trees, and then from there it goes into the first age, second age, third age, and fourth age, which is where everything kind of stops in terms of the storyline, as we don't have any books or anything to tell us what happens after that. So like the beginning of time before the creation of the world and everything was when Iru, Iluvatar, like the one god, creates the beings known as the Ainur. And then it goes into the years of music where Iluvatar teaches the Ainur how to make beautiful music, which is their purpose, and that's when Melkor kind of has his fall and becomes evil, and Iluvatar shows the Ainur, a vision of what his creation will look like once they're done, and Ea and Arda is created, and some of the Ainur um, decide to enter that world, becoming the Valar, which are the more powerful ones, or the Maiar, which are the lesser powerful gods. Then it goes into the years of lamps, and the beginning of time starts from obviously the beginning of time, and goes to VY 3500, which stands for Valley in Years. And then it goes into the Years of Lamps, with some overlap starting at VY 1900, and that's when Arda, the kind of world, is dark and lifeless, Melkor is plotting his destruction of everything that's being created, like the lamps, and then the Valar create the two trees that light Valinor, in VY 3500, which then leads into the years of trees, and that's when the fathers of the dwarves and ents awaken in YT 1085 for years of trees, and Melkor now starts capturing elves and using them to breed orcs, and now he's making trolls. Melkor is defeated and captured during this time. Melkor gets sentenced in Valinor, to three ages worth of imprisonment, and Sauron evades the Valar and stays in Middle-earth and continues Melkor's work, building armies and fortresses. Some elves actually start leaving for Valinor during this time. Then in YT 1362 is when Galadriel is born. 38 years later, in 1400, Melkor is set free. And then, almost a hundred years later, in 1495, Melkor destroys the two trees of Valinor, and shortly thereafter is reunited with Sauron, 
Then the Valar create the sun and the moon from the remnants of the two trees to keep Middle-earth from being in darkness again when, once again, and Melkor is renamed Morgoth. This then leads to the First Age, which is now starting to get into the Children of Hurin. First Age Year 1 is when the men start awakening in Hildorian in the Far East. Fingolfin becomes the High King of Noldor, and there's a bunch of battles back and forth with the Noldor and Morgoth. Baron and Luthien meet and fall in love, and then their story go continues on through hundreds of years, leading to the Battle of Nargothron, which falls, and then Turin kills Glaurung, spoiler alert, and then also dies. Arendil, like the Light of Arendil, which you may have heard, is born in First Age 503. Jumping ahead in First Age 510 is when Gondolin finally falls to Morgoth. Gilgalad becomes the High King of Noldor, and that leads up through when the First Age 587, when the Valar finally defeat Morgoth. The last two Silmarils are lost. Mordor rises from the sea, and the Valar cast Morgoth into the void, which is basically just the nothingness, the space outside of Arda in First Age 590, which then takes us to the Second Age, where Gilgalad creates a new kingdom for his people in Linden, way up in northwest of Middle-earth, like almost into Beleriand, which is no longer around. In Second Age 1000 is when Sauron builds the fortress of Berador in Mordor. He, then in 1500 is when he disguises himself as a friend called Anatar and starts working on the creation of his the Rings of Power with Celebrimbor. And that's when the corruption starts in Second Age 1693. The elves hide their rings from him. Jumping ahead a bit, Second Age 3209 is when Isildur, one of my all-time favorite characters and doesn't deserve half the hate he gets, especially because of how the movies made him look, is born in Numenor, which is also my favorite place and people group, and I'm freaking stoked to get to that episode here very soon as we start getting into the Silmarillion and slash Rings of Power. But anyway, uh, Second Age 3320, that's when Arnor, Arnor and Gondor are founded by Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion, Isildur's brother. And that leads up to what we see actually in the flashback of the Fellowship of the Ring, where Sauron emerges from Barad-dûr into the field of combat, where he kills Gilgalad and Elendil. That's when Isildur cuts the ring from his hand, and he is temporarily defeated once again. And then that leads into the Third Age, which is starts off with Isildur becoming the king of Gondor and Arnor in the Third Age, Year 1. Year 2, he plants the White Tree of Minas Tirith. Third Age 1000 is when the wizards arrive into Middle-earth. 1050 is when Sauron's spirit arrives and corrupts Mirkwood as he takes over Dol Guldur. And during all this time, the Witch King and his other minions are still wrecking havoc on Middle-earth. Uh, the Third Age 1981 
is when the dwarves uh, flee Moria. Third Age 1999 is when the Arkenstone is found in Erebor. 2002 was when Minas Ethel fell to the Nazgul after two years of a siege and is renamed Minas Morgul. Uh, Smeagol was born 2430. 2463 is when Smeagol kills Deagle over the One Ring. And 2746, Thorn Oakenshield is born. 2759, Saruman takes over Isengard. Um, Bilbo's born, Aragorn's born. A lot of our main characters are born during this time. This then goes into the Hobbit films and books. More accurate. The Hobbit books and films and covers that time and then 60 years later the Fellowship of the Ring starts in the timeline and then that goes through what most of everyone is familiar with up through the destruction of the ring which ends the third age so starts the fourth age and again we have some events almost two centuries worth of time into the fourth age that we kind of know what goes on but then after that everything kind of falls off because that's where the books and our sources of information end so that is a very a fairly brief overview of the timeline <clears throat> everything starts in the very beginning with the silmarillion and silmarillion goes all the way through basically tens of thousands of years really and it kind of touches on the other books like Children of Hurin, Baron and Luthien, Fall of Gondolin, and all that. And all, The Fall of Numenor as well, because that book is about to be released now too, from last I heard. So if you read The Silmarillion, you kind of cover all the other books as well, but it's just not as in-depth. So it gives you a very intricate description of everything up into those. And then it's a more of an overview. You still get the main ideas and everything that happens in all those stories, but not in as much detail, say, if you read Baron and Luthien compared to, the, to just the Silmarillion. And our last question comes from Chase McKinney, who I'm really sorry, Chase. <laughs> I already reached out to him. Uh, this is one of those questions that kind of just got lost in the chaos and somehow snuck through, and I didn't find it until very recently. So it's from a couple months ago, but we're going to get to it now. Jay says, I have some questions for the most knowledgeable wizard and lore master of Ministry of Archives. He's very, always very generous in his titles giving. He says, first, there, is there a rationale for Bilbo aging so quickly and becoming frail with Smeagol seemingly not, despite having it even longer? Second, Thorin and his company of dwarves more or less hailed from the Lonely Mountain. Was there a mo most regal to least regal mountain range system for the dwarves? What else do the mountains have to tell us about the dwarf culture and society? Oh, and now he's getting extra deep with that last question. So based on the first question of Bilbo aging so quickly and becoming frail, Smeagol seemingly not, despite having it even longer, I'm reading as when Frodo gets the ring or not Frodo when Bilbo gets the ring in The Hobbit and then we see him in Fellowship and he is a lot older and then once he loses the ring he starts aging super crazy fast as it kind of catch, catches back up with him 
unfortunately just comes down to a basic continuity error with filming. Uh, the using of two different actors and doing the makeup differently. Um, Bilbo would not have necessarily aged like that through that time between when he got the ring and up until giving it up to Frodo. Events between The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring span 60 years. So during that 60, 60 plus years that he had it, he's obviously not aging during that time. Where Gollum had the ring for over 500 years. So for that entire time, he's not aging. So he had it longer, but he's also has the benefit, if it really is a benefit, of not aging throughout a much longer period of time. In terms of the book, we can kind of picture them how we expect them to be in our heads more. For the movie, it's unfortunately just as dumb of an explanation as it was a continuity error on Peter Jackson's part, which is kind of hard to do when you start with like the Lord of the Rings and then go to The Hobbit, whereas if you went from The Hobbit and then filmed Lord of the Rings, I don't see that same mistake having it happened. As for the second question of the mountains of the dwarves, there wasn't, in terms of the mountains themselves, there was not a most to least regal mountain range. It would really only depend on who is in the mountain range. Like three in the first, it being an Erebor with the Arkenstone, you could probably say at that time that Erebor was the most regal. And then during certain times, it would probably have been. The Misty Mountains with Moria, when maybe later on when Balin was, was there and one of like or like when the dwarves were first founded and Durin founded the city Khazadum, also known as Moria, at that time would probably would be the most regal. So it would really just depend on the people who were there and not so much the mountain itself. And it would likely change over the ages and as for the mountains and what they have to tell us about the dwarf culture and society, that just goes back to the Silmarillion, where Ehuli basically created the seven fathers of the dwarves, from whom all the other dwarves descended, and he created them deep beneath the mountain in Middle-earth, and then once he was going to destroy them because the Luvatar got angry, but then took pity on them and was like, okay, fine, you can keep them. He basically told Eule to let them sleep in their chamber beneath the mountain, where they will stay until after the awakening of the elves. So between being like created and, I wouldn't say cursed, but forced to live under the mountain by Iluvatar, that's why where they kind of get their whole underground tunneling and underground city building from. That is it for this week's episode. If you like it, feel free to subscribe and leave a review. Let us know how we did. If you have any complaints or advice, be sure to let us know and add it in your review so we can hopefully fix it. If you have any questions yourselves, feel free to send them to our email, ministeriatharchives at gmail.com. Send it through the Facebook page on Instagram or the Contact Us tab on our website, ministeriatharchives.com. 
If you're not already part of the group in on Facebook, with our Facebook page or Facebook group, History Middle Earth Podcast, be sure to go on there, give us a like and follow as well, and talk with some other Tolkienites. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you back next time. Until then, I'm your host, Phil, and you're listening to the History of Middle Earth Podcast. Podcast.